Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. It's an Earth Day tradition here on Access Utah. We invite Utah riders to reflect on the environment. This year, Stephen Trimble, who's been with us for all three programs, uh, whose books include Bargaining for Eden, says he's been thinking about climate change and the moral responsibility of the writer to speak up for our relationship with each other and with the earth. We're going to talk about that. We'll also be joined by Teresa Jordan, author most recently of The Year of Living Virtuously, of course, many other books, and Tim Wagner with Utah Physicians for a Healthy Environment. We're going to reflect on the earth and the land from a poetic and political perspective. We're going to ask you what your favorite place is and why. What do you suggest we read for Earth Day and what should we do? So welcome to Access Utah Earth Day 2015. Uh, Stephen Tremble, thanks for joining us. Hi, Tom. I'm delighted to be here. And uh, Teresa Jordan, thanks for joining us. Do, do we have uh, Teresa Jordan with us? Oops. Sounds like the line's a little bit fuzzy. We might have to, to call you back. And uh, Tim Wagner joins us as well. Thank you. Yes, good morning, Tom. Happy to be here. Thank you. So, Tim, uh, you're with Utah Physicians for Healthy Environment. Uh, is, that a new, is that a new position for you? Yeah, I, I uh, came on board as executive director for the organization last fall. So I've been at it now for about seven months. Okay, and are you still a Sierra Club? No, no, I left okay. the Sierra Club mid-year last year and uh, took a few months off to kind of recharge and then came back full-time working for Utah Physicians last fall. Okay. I want to jump in here with an email we've already received from uh, Kylie in uh, Moab. I, I put out a tweet uh, asking our listeners to uh, describe their favorite places, uh, their favorite landscape for Earth Day. And uh, Kylie has a problem with that. And I, can, I can see what she's saying. So let me read this uh, email and get a response from you. Um, Kylie says, we actually need to be keeping our favorite places a secret. The big problem these days is that everyone wants to tell everyone about their favorite places. All those wonderful secret spots that Sunset Magazine, Backpacker Magazine, Guidebook, Social Media, etc. tell everyone about, and then they're no longer secret, and masses of people go to them. What we all need to be doing is keeping these special places secret to protect them from being loved too much. We in Moab are seeing this firsthand. The Mighty Five ad campaign advertising Moab, Zion, etc. has created a serious problem with tourism. We're being inundated with people. The land is being adversely impacted. So on this Earth Day, I ask everyone to keep your special place a secret to protect it and respect it. And she signs it, Revering the Earth, Kylie in Moab. Uh, first to Stephen Trimble, what do, you, what do you think about that? Oh, that is such a good question, Kylie. Uh, long ago, I decided that we can't keep those places secret. Um, many, many years ago, I was a ranger at Capitol Reef, and a friend told me a secret, and that secret was a waterfall on the backside of Boulder Mountain, and I, I made that my special place, my pilgrimage place, and I rarely ever saw anyone there. And after I had finished that summer of work at Capitol Reef, and went back to the city. I was standing in line at a grocery store, and I thought of that waterfall of mine as in the middle of nowhere. Nobody else knew about it. And I was in line at the grocery store looking at a magazine, and the magazine had a feature on the 10 best swimming holes in America, and there was my waterfall. Mm. And I, I realized that, especially now with the Internet and everyone posting their trip logs and Google Google's power as a search engine, no place is secret. And so our obligation is to make sure that 
we make sure that anyone who goes there knows a lot about the place. <clears throat> That's our obligation as writers, so that when it comes time for that place to be threatened, and all, virtually all places will be threatened by something, we can all stand and speak up and say, we know that place, and we want to preserve it. Tim Wagner, what do you what do you think? Should we, if we have a special place, keep it secret? Well, I think Connie makes a very valid point. I share similar concerns that she does, and in fact, I have several places in Utah that I kind of regard as very special to me, and I generally don't share them with most people. However, there is a, a need, I think, to recognize that we live in a very, very quickly uh, changing time. Uh, as Stephen alluded to, the Internet and the ability to transmit images and text and content to a very wide audience very quickly, uh, it's, it's virtually impossible, I believe, to keep any place a secret. Mm. Uh, I would also um, counter uh, uh, this, this notion with the fact that some places, I think, may be better preserved if we have more people aware, aware of them. And I think you can probably look no further than the backyard of Moab to see what's going on with such tremendous oil and gas development now in that region. The more we have people aware of this special place, this special landscape around the Paradox Basin and in greater Canyonland region of southeastern Utah, I think the better forces we have to mobilize and stand up for and, and express their voices for protecting these landscapes because industry doesn't really care. I think they're going to go after wherever they can find the resource to develop it. Develop it. So uh, it, it's, it's a catch-22. There's no doubt it is. But uh, I think in today's crazy digital world, uh, we've got to be able to have the ability to mobilize a lot of voices to speak up for these places. And sometimes that, that means letting people know where these places are. By the way, we're still trying to get Teresa Jordan on the on the phone to work out the, the phone line issue, so we hope to be joined by her soon. If you just joined us, we're talking with Stephen Trimble and uh, Tim Wagner, and we're celebrating Earth Day uh, today. So, uh, Stephen Trimble, I, I want to follow up here. Uh, so, Kylie is describing uh, a problem, uh, I think a lot of people would agree, in, in, uh, in Moab, and indeed probably the, the Mighty Five. So the ad campaign, it's probably good development if more and more people are seeing, I guess, tourism, seeing the land um, and enjoying the land as, as an economic driver rather than exploiting the land and, and oil development and such. But you do have this downside of uh, perhaps loving the land too much. That's true. I mean, Utah is a really interesting place. Um, uh, it's one of the most highly urbanized states. You know, we all live along the Wasatch Front. You know, well over 80% of Utahns live along the Wasatch Front. And the rest of the, the state is, is so beautiful, an opportunity for us to go out into open country. You know, national parks, national forests, Bureau of Land Management land. You know, this is the West where, in our state, two-thirds of the land is public land. And so we are drawn to those few hot spots like Arches National Park or Zion National Park. Now, Zion hit a record last year at Memorial Day when there were 90,000 people in the park on one day. You know, it's crazy. So I, I, I encourage people to go off the beaten path, go off the beaten track, 
you know, on Memorial Day when the national parks are crowded, go out into the Great Basin, go out into the West Desert. Uh, when you go to the national forest, just kind of let yourself get lost and keep taking branching dirt roads until you're off in the middle of nowhere, and that's where you want to set up your camp. So it's a huge management issue for the Park Service and the superintendent at Arches and Canyonlands who have to manage those hordes of people that are drawn by the advertising campaigns. But for those of us who live in the state, we have choices, and we can go places that aren't part of those advertising campaigns. And they are absolutely remarkable. Uh, Tim Wagner, what what can people who live in those areas do? Uh, and we're uh, we're seeing this. We we had a program uh, last week with uh, Frederick Swanson, who has a new book out about uh, formation of wilderness in in the Northern Rockies. And we had several callers uh, who were who were, I guess, expressing similar concerns about uh, Zion and uh, that area being you know Springdale area being loved to death. What what can people in those areas do? Well, I think I, I, I agree with Stephen uh, uh, to a large degree, and I practice this myself. I mean, I've lived in Utah for 22 years now, and while I've been to every national park several times and enjoy, have enjoyed it immensely, I have truly found other great places in Utah to go uh, to, uh, you know, one, just avoid the large crowds, but also where I can find that that very well-defined personal connection I have with the, with the particular landscape and and not have it interrupted by the so-called tourist experience. And that's the great thing about Utah is we live in this, this, this amazing place with world-class scenery and landscapes comparable to nowhere else in the world. I mean, really, truly it is. And and uh, and so much of it. And there's so many places, even after living here for two decades, there's so many places in Utah I still have not seen. And I and I intend to try to see as much of the state as I can while I'm here. Um, and I would just encourage people to do the same thing. I, I think I personally would like to see um, uh, our you know officials in charge of promoting the state tourism officials and everybody else to be promoting uh, visiting some of these other places besides just our national parks. I mean, I'm certainly as much, much of an advocate of our national parks as anybody, but uh, there's a lot of places where people can go that, um, that they can see equally stunning landscapes and have a very wild wilderness experience. Now, obviously, it takes a fair amount of more planning, and, and that kind of stuff to make sure you're going out there and being safe and so forth. But, you know, it just, it just involves just a little, a little bit more effort, that's all. Mm-hmm. And the people who live in the areas of the national parks, you know, what they can do, I think, uh, get involved. You know, become a volunteer for those areas and, you know, take some free time and, and spend time visiting with visitors and stuff and trying to educate them about the sensitivity of this landscape. You know, there's, there's tons of volunteer opportunities out there for, you know, at the National Parks, for instance, where they need people to be on the ground who's helping, you know, educate folks in leading hikes and so forth and so on. So there are lots of opportunities, I think. It's just a matter of, you know, looking for the right opportunity and taking it. I think we are joined now by Teresa Jordan. We've fixed the phone problem, hopefully. Uh, Teresa Jordan, are you there? 
I am here. It's oh, good uh, to join you. Good. Thank you. Good to have you with us. We apologize for the phone problems there. Uh, so uh, you you may or may not have heard the uh, the uh, response from Kylie in, in Moab, who, who says, uh, and we're throwing out the, the opportunity for listeners to uh, talk about their favorite landscape, their favorite place. Kylie's response was, we actually need to be keeping our favorite places a secret. She says they're having a problem in Moab there with the... Mighty Five ad campaign, Moab, Zion, etc., create a serious problem with tourism and being inundated, inundated with people loving the place to death. Uh, as I wonder what uh, you, of course, you're in, you're in Virgin, I believe, right? I am in Virgin, on the edge of Zion. On the edge of Zion. What, what's, what's your perspective there? Do you, what, do you think we've got to keep some of these places uh, secret? Of course, you can't keep Zion secret, but uh, what's your thought? Well, there are, but there certainly are places that, that, um, I, I do keep secret, you know, places that, that you stumble upon where there's um, petroglyphs or, or um, places that you feel are, are particularly um, fragile. Um, I th- you know, there's, there's um, always the argument that um, people need to know about the beauty that is there in order to, to fight for its survival. But I think there's some places that, that we many of us have stumbled upon where we realize this is a very fragile place and and as much as as you can feel um pride and excitement about finding something like that um there's almost a sense of intrusion too and 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 very much a desire not to have a highway beat to its to its door Mm -hmm. are there uh, obviously you're the answer would be yes. I was going to ask you: Are there such places? You've you've found such places. Uh, so, in your area, there, Virgin, the, the Zion um, National Park area. Of course, most people would go to Zion. There, I guess, there are places where you, where you can go apart from Zion. Right. I mean, there's there's beautiful, beautiful country outside the borders of the park. We have. Um, we lost our dog in, in June. We've actually just gotten a new puppy. But but because we had a, a dog for so many years, we didn't do a lot of hiking in the park because you can't, you know, you can't take your dog in the park. And uh, so we really explored a lot around the um, around the edges of Zion, and there's beautiful country around the edges of, of um, most national parks. Hmm. Well, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll have more. It's Earth Day 2015, 45th anniversary. And what started as a teach-in, a national teach-in, Senator uh, um, Gaylord Nelson, uh, there were others who had the idea as well, uh, worldwide, and it's now going, gone 45 years. It's become a tra- tradition here at Utah uh, Public Radio and Access Utah to uh, gather some writers and uh, reflect on Earth Day. When we come back, we'll get into uh, something Stephen Trimble has been uh, thinking about. He says he's been thinking about climate change and the moral responsibility of the writer to speak up for our relationship with each other and with the earth. We also want to know what uh, maybe your favorite passage of a nature writing is. You could tell us about your favorite place, uh, perhaps, you know, to keep keep, keep the details uh, secret so it doesn't get loved to death. And uh, question, what should we do? Uh, I think a lot of people uh, feel like as we're celebrating Earth Day, maybe we should be moved to action. What would you suggest? All of that when we come back following the break. Next time on Living on Earth, remembering pioneering scientist Theo Colburn. I was extremely privileged to work with someone like Theo. She really took a stand for the sake of planet Earth and human health. Her research raised the alarm about endocrine-disrupting chemicals. I'm Steve Kerwood, and that's next time on Living on Earth. 
from PRI. Wednesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Congratulations to graduates at Utah State University regional campuses, including Brigham City, Tooele, USU Basin, Richfield, and Moab. UPR congratulates all graduates at USU regional campuses on their accomplishments and wishes them all the best. Happy Earth Day to you. It's Earth Day 2015. Our tradition here at Access Utah is we gather some Utah writers to reflect on the environment. And we have with us Teresa Jordan, author most recently of The Year of Living Virtuously. Uh, Tim Wagner joins us. He's with Utah Physicians for a Healthy Environment. And uh, Stephen Trimble, whose books include Bargaining for Eden, is uh, with us. In this segment, I wanted to get into talking about uh, the role of the writer. Stephen Trimble, uh, in preparation for this program, says he's been thinking about climate change and the moral responsibility of the writer to speak up for our relationship with each other and with the earth. Just a happy coincidence, uh, just two days ago, we uh, had on our program interesting uh, conversation with David Gessner, a nature writer who's written a very interesting new book uh, about uh, Edward Abbey and Wallace Stegner. David Gessner took a pilgrimage uh, to visit some of the places where these uh, two writers uh, wrote about and, and lived, and he's reflecting on uh, on the earth. All the wild that remains is is the book. He said something interesting about his evolving uh, view of himself as writer and what he ought to be doing, which fits in, I think, perfectly here. Let's hear this uh, first clip from that conversation. I would write kind of lyric um, evocations of those places. And really the turn for me came when I was at a, a barbecue at a friend's house uh, five years ago, almost to the day five years ago. And uh, a friend who was a writer I respect a lot, John Jeremiah Sullivan, said, you should be down in the Gulf during the spill, during the oil spill. Um, you write about nature, you should be there. And I said, oh, no, that's not the kind of nature I write about, thinking of, you know, light shafting in and little uh, transcendental moments. And I went home and I thought about it, and I said, he's absolutely right. Uh, And two days later, to my wife's chagrin, I was heading down to the Gulf, and I was down there during the whole mess five years ago, and it got me to start thinking more and more about resources, about consumption, about hard stuff that a lot of times gets left out of, of nature books. And certainly Stegner is an example of somebody who included it. You know, he, he appreciated... The, the, the phony contrast between Abbey and Stegner is that Stegner didn't get out in it. He hiked and, and ran rivers and did everything. You know, he was always outside, but he thought hard about what Barry called land use. So that's David Gessner, and he, he's comparing and contrasting Edward Abbey and, and uh, Wallace Stegner, but he's also talking about his own journey. Uh, Stephen Trimble, I wonder if uh, that resonates with, with you. Oh, it absolutely does. And uh, also, let me put in a plug for David's book. It's a really good book. Really, really interesting book. Yeah, it's just uh, an, an eternal challenge for a writer. So I, I think of myself as a writer who writes about landscape. You could call me a nature writer or a landscape essayist, but you know, I mean, I, I care about the earth. I care about the places that I love, and my skill in life is to be a writer. So how am I going to use that skill? What can I say? Which venue should I choose? What content should I choose? 
and Dave, David laid it out really clearly. You know, it's it's uh, it's so joyful to simply absorb a place and try to express that place in words, and that can be immensely powerful. You know, Thoreau's Walden Pond is still a magical and iconic place for everyone who reads that book and even has heard of the book, and yet we are faced with these enormous challenges, global challenges like climate change, um, the air quality along the Wasatch Front that Tim Tim's organization responds to so actively. And what choices do we make? Uh, we can kind of turn inward and think and ponder and use the specific story of our grappling with the issues to illuminate the universal issues, the universal problems. And it's really hard to write about the Earth all together. You know, we have that, that spaceship Earth image of the little blue ball floating in space. But as a writer, that's a pretty difficult thing to deal with. And so you tend to retreat down to the specific, to your place. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm constantly bouncing back and forth on this. I'm not going to give you a an absolute answer, and I know that Teresa and Tim will want to comment on this too, but you know, we're in the midst of a great extinction on the planet, and our habitat is fragmenting, and we're losing species, and invasive species from the other side of the planet turn up in our home landscape, and climate change is going to drastically change the way we live. So as a writer, I want people to know about that. I want people to respond to that. And I, I choose to write in lots of different ways. I write op-eds where I try to address the big issues and hook those big issues to a local story. I write small pieces that are tied to very specific places. I give, give talks. I try to remind people that this is something we're going to have to figure out how to deal with, climate change specifically. But um, I think we have to do all those things. And, and here we've got three writers who, who respond in very different ways. Hmm. But it's, it's, a, it's a real challenge for writers every morning when we get up and, and sit down to our keyboards. If you just joined us, we're talking with uh, Stephen Tribble, who you just heard from, Teresa Jordan, and uh, Tim Wagner. And we're uh, celebrating and reflecting on Earth Day. A specific question for this segment is, uh, what is the role of the writer? What's the responsibility of the writer? Uh, David Gessner talked about uh, moving from uh, describing shafts of light and transcendental moments to uh, going to the Gulf. Uh, that resulted in one of his books, The Tarball Chronicles. Uh, so you're welcome to join us here at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Uh, you can join us uh, to our email, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, and to Twitter, we're at Utah Public Radio. I want to know if you agree with the Kylie in Moab. She says we actually need to be keeping our favorite places a secret to avoid them being loved to death. Uh, do you agree with that? Uh, if you do give us your favorite uh, landscape, maybe you could keep the details a bit fuzzy. Uh, what do you suggest we read for Earth Day? We're going to hear some passages from our writers uh, later in the program. And uh, what should we be doing? Uh, and that's the focus of the program here. Let me turn next to Teresa Jordan. What, what do you think of, uh, of this idea of the, the role of the writer? What do, you, what do you see your role as being? You know, I think, as, as Steve said, I think each of us comes to, comes to this in our individual way through um, how we are able, through, through our own love, through our own passion, and how we are able to um, articulate that and what we come to through our own 
inquiry, our own investigation, our own challenge of trying to live um, to our ideals, uh, what we come to, you know, increasingly see is important. And I know that that for me, as um, um, the, my most recent book is, is this book, The Year of Living Virtuously, Weekends Off, that was started as an, um, um, sort of a, um, using jump-off points of Benjamin Franklin's 13 Virtues and, and the Seven Deadly Sins. And through, and then went from there into all sorts of other virtues and vices. But at the end, what I realized kept rising to the top for me was, um, it, I think sometimes we think our, our consumption is is a matter of of greed. But I think I, I don't think it's greed so much as thoughtlessness. I don't think it's greed so much as hunger or greed so much as gluttony. And if we talk about you know loving places to death. Um, loving our things to death, loving consumption to death. It, you know, in the end, it it, uh, um, comes, it comes down to this sort of hunger that we keep consuming to try to to answer, and that is um, that's fascinating to me. I want to look at my own hunger. I want to look at the messages um, that that um, that tell us increasingly to consume. And, and some years ago, I did a little book on Yosemite, a little um, uh, 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 illustrated journal with essays. And one of the things that I really got to thinking about there and spending time in Yosemite, this was just before the Great Recession and the visitation to Yosemite was so terribly hot. It's a place, uh, you know, always in danger of being left to death. But there's so much that, of incredible value in a national park. We can learn. We have, we have such resources to learn so much about nature. But it seems to me that part of our responsibility then is to take that back to our home place and to not look, not look in order to satisfy our hunger for nature, to not look only at these most gorgeous of places, but to look right outside our front door. And um, to, to fill, to satisfy some of that hunger uh, with the quotidian, with the, with the things we tend to overlook at or not even think of as nature because they're urban. And I lived in Salt Lake for many years. Almost every day I was up on the Bonneville Trail. Um, one thing that was extraordinary to me in the literally hundreds of times I was up there, I almost never saw children. Um, that trail is, is not used very much by families. And and it's not used very much by by children. And, and, you know, our children are helicoptered to a degree that they aren't allowed to explore much on their own. But to walk through uh, the university campus and begin to notice on a daily basis what trees are coming into bloom or what weeds are growing in the margins, there's such an incredible um, nature all around us. And I think that, that beginning to pay attention to some of that can take some of the um, the pressure off, quote-unquote, precious or preserved places. But I think this is true in so many other assets of our life. I, I The first painting class I took many, many years ago at a little um, at the at the community college in Elko, Nevada, at the end of the class, the um, professor, the, uh, Patty Fox, said to each of us that we should take one thing we've made and frame it. And she said, and then maybe you won't have to buy something. I mean, I think that buying mm. and consuming is so often a creative act, and it and it comes in as this mindless and insatiable hunger because we aren't 
making things for ourselves. So those are some of the issues as a writer that even though if I talk about them, they don't seem perhaps in, uh, environmental writing at the first blush, I think they're, these are, are, are thoughts I find shaping my own environmental ethic at a fairly deep level, at a, at a very deep level. I want to uh, bring uh, Tim Wagner back in conversation, but first I want to get in a call. This is Tom and Vernal. Uh, Tom, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. You know, I, I really resonate to what the last caller was saying. And in my opinion, spectacles don't make very good secrets. Uh, the secret places I find are in the, the kind of everyday beauty that was being described. It's widespread in Utah and in the West. If you're on a two-week vacation from Jersey, it's understandable if you want to go to Zion and you want to see Angels Landing. But if you will settle for an exposed outcrop of, of rock, you know, with lichens on it and junipers, that's available to just about everybody in Utah and not very far away. So if you want to keep a place like that secret and undamaged, and I kind of make a big life way out of this, I would say go by yourself. Stop talking, turn off your phone, don't even take any pictures. And that's the best way to make a connection. And you have an opportunity to become the world expert on that little piece of ground. Like I remember Walden in Florida was talking about how he'd make the rounds and visit certain trees that he knew. Well, I'm thinking in my secret place of a juniper that it's just it's a beautiful juniper like many of them are. There's a pack rat nest, you know, up in it. There's a tin can at the foot of it. And it's not on any trail. I bet I'm the only human being that thinks any that juniper. And that's the sort of thing that makes life worth living for me. Well, beautifully said, Tom. Appreciate that. Thank you for that. Uh, Tom in Vernal uh, called us. You can as well. Our email is upraxcess at gmail.com. We're reflecting on Earth Day. Uh, Tim Wagner, I wonder, wonder what your thoughts are on this, especially on this this idea of role of the uh, of a writer and uh and and perhaps what we should all be doing. Well, I think all of the answers you've gotten so far are very valid. Uh, I guess my experiences tell me that you know I you know I I I spent about ten years living in Logan and and went to school at Utah State and one of my favorite classes and instructors uh, was. Uh, Tom Lyons' uh, class on nature writing, which is one of the classes I took my last year at Utah State. And um, Tom was such a, an amazing individual, uh, helping his students understand that heartfelt connection that we all have with the place. And, and in those days, you know, one of the overriding phrases of... of that genre was just dealing with a sense of place, and I think that sense, I think that sense of place still still uh, is very prevalent today, um, because it's that sense of place is what motivates us to go and visit, and motivates us to eventually fall in love with that landscape, and then ultimately, hopefully, try to protect it, and. And uh, and I think for a long time the writing about the sense of place was the most dutiful response or dutiful responsibility I would say of of a writer in, in dealing with landscapes because that's what that's what 
it brings us all back to that place and, and ultimately want, uh, motivates us to want to protect it. But we live in a changing time. And, and I don't want to get too political here because I don't think we need to go there. But, you know, we live in a time when, when um, the threats to these landscapes and our very planet are as great as they have ever been greatest I've ever seen in my entire life. And, uh, you know, while I think true sense of place writing, nature writing, whatever you want to describe it, has uh, always been kind of at the higher level of, of dealing with the emotional aspect of our human condition in the landscape, there, there are also underlying that that top layer of emotional connection is the basic science that in which these systems, in which these landscapes function. Now we live in a time when that science is really being attacked, not only questioned, but literally being attacked. And, and, um, and unfortunately, there is a certain percentage of, I think, society that wants to try to believe that um, that science isn't real. I, for example, I saw a quote from some member of Congress just yesterday who was questioning the validity of wind power, wind turbines, by claiming that uh, too much wind power would stop the Earth from rotating. And it's like, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> We're now entering a realm here that is just completely off the charts in terms of just a total disconnect of what even the very basic science of Earth is and what our connection to the landscape should be. And I think this propels us as writers to be able to integrate a message into our writing that, that without getting too political, still advances the message that, look, there's, base, there's very basic principles of this functioning system that sustains us. And if we cannot work in a way to protect those systems and protect the very basic process in which our planet sustains us, then we're all basically doomed. And, and so I think there's a, in summary, I think there's a responsibility as a writer to try to incorporate that kind of a message that, that helps people understand that it isn't just an emotional connection to this landscape. You really do have to try to have a very basic understanding of what this what this particular landscape or this place is about, otherwise, it, it's all for naught, in my opinion. If you just joined us, uh, you've heard there from uh, Tim Wagner, who's with the uh, Utah Physicians for a Healthy Environment. We're also talking with uh, Teresa Jordan, author most recently of The Year of Living Virtuously, and Stephen Trimble, whose books include Bargaining for Eden. And you're welcome to join us here. And we go next to Logan in Rockville. Logan, uh, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Hey, thanks. And hi, Stephen, and hi, Teresa. Um, something Teresa said about uh, hunger and connectivity. I I work with the crowds here in Zion, and one of the the scarier things is that the busier it gets, the more Disneyland analogies emerge from the crowd. They're actually sort of okay with waiting for two hours to get in the canyon. And um, even though this is an age of... of of unprecedented connectivity, 
with you know Instagram, YouTube, et cetera, et cetera. It's disassociated and disconnected, sort of disembodied from the world, from the from the natural world. And so uh, I've uh, made a lot of sacrifices to live where I live, which is very pretty secluded in a way. And I was been very happy with that. But now I have a helicopter flying over my house 18 times a day. Um, the silence and the stillness is a whole dimension that, uh, that it's sort of like the night sky. It's this whole dimension of, of it's one of the tiny perfections that the desert needs to really unfurl. And that is gone. It's simply gone. And nobody seems to notice. So I think that, uh, and back to Teresa's idea of hunger, we, we hunger for this connectivity. We want to be connected to each other. And as a, as a, as a sort of um, amateur writer, my, uh, my effort was with the, the indigenous peoples, with the Paiute, to try to flesh out how they're connected to each other and to the world around them. I think as, as writers, it's, it's one of the responsibilities to point to these whole dimensions that are slipping off of, of the, over the horizon like stillness and like night sky and try to tie them into the, the hunger that people have and, and sort of point them in the right direction. Anyway, hey, thanks for your time. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Logan. I appreciate that. Uh, well, well said. I appreciate those comments. We're going to take a break. When we come back uh, more with Stephen Trimble, um, Tim Wagner, and Teresa Jordan, and we'll hear some passages. One question we're throwing out to you is uh, what's maybe a, a favorite uh, passage that you would suggest to us to read as we celebrate Earth Day. We'll also hear another clip from David Gessner. He said he's been inspired to action. He doesn't know what he's going to do, but he's going to take some action. We'll ask you what you are going to do for Earth Day or maybe inspired by Earth Day. More following the break. This week on the Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. The goal of education is to help young people fall in love with the world. In our case, it's fall in love with the natural world. And that's not something that happens from third-handed book learning. It happens in direct contact with the world. I'm Neil Harvey. This week, it's eco-schools growing eco-literacy on the Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. Wednesday night at 8.30 on Utah Public Radio. Our listeners are company presidents, board members, partners, and other top executives. Your company can talk directly to these decision makers with program sponsorship. For more information, call Terry Guy at 435-797-3215. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We are celebrating Earth Day on the program today. It's an Access Utah tradition. We gather uh, some uh, Utah writers together, reflect on the environment. And uh, we have with us Stephen Trimble. His books include Bargaining for Eden, Teresa Jordan, most recently author of The Year of Living Virtuously, and Tim Wagner, who is with Utah Physicians for a Healthy Environment. We hope to hear from you. Another 10 minutes left in the program. You can call us at 1-800-826-1495 or upraxis at gmail.com is our email. You can get through to us, and we're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. 
And uh, perhaps you could tell us about your favorite place. Keep the details a little fuzzy. Uh, Kylie uh, in Moab uh, responded early in the program uh, saying that uh, some places are loved to death. We actually need to be keeping our favorite places secret. You can tell us whether you agree or not. Uh, tell us uh, maybe a favorite passage that uh, you suggest we read. And, and what should we be doing? Uh, move to action uh, as we celebrate uh, Earth Day. Um, let's uh, go uh, next to a couple of emails, then I'd like to hear uh, some passages, favorite passages from our writers. Um, this is a brief email from Glenn, who says the Monkey Wrench gang should be made into a movie. Enough said. Thanks, Glenn. And here is Brian in Hyde Park, who says, I'm of the opinion that we need to spend more time visiting fewer places. Then we will gain a greater respect for the land we visit. Instead of trying to visit as many places as we can, why not focus on one area, even within one national park? For instance, I have a favorite spot in Shinab Canyon, just off Grand Wash in Capitol Reef National Park. Everyone goes to Grand Wash, but here's this little gem of a canyon, easy to get into, but hardly anyone likes to uh, get into Shinab uh, Canyon. hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, Brian. I was uh, first uh, introduced uh, to it through an interpretive hike conducted by a park ranger. At the back of one of the forks in the canyon in a protected area is a lone ponderosa pine. There are no other ponderosa in the area, and one reflects on how the seed that grew this pine got to this remote location. Go up to the bank and smell it. What's the aroma? Say some, uh, some uh, say fresh-baked bread. Others have a, has said a little hint of vanilla. For me, I get a strong aroma of butterscotch. Thank you to that ranger for, among other things, helping me see the smaller, finer points that helped me appreciate the landscape I was hiking in. That was almost 25 years ago, and I've been back many times since. That's Brian in Hyde Park. Thanks for that, Brian. Uh, Stephen Trimble, what do, you, what do you think of that? You're, you, you live uh, in that area? Yeah, I actually know that Ponderosa Pine and Chenab Canyon. And uh, a little earlier, your caller, Tom, from Vernal, was talking about going small, and that's absolutely good advice. Uh, when I talk with folks about photography, I remind them to, to look down as they're walking along a trail and to look up into the sky and see how the canyon walls are framing that sky and to turn around and look behind them and to stop and look for patterns in a single rock face. So. That's all good advice. You know, the the point of writing, I think, really is to make us care. And that's the bottom line. And the question really is then, how do we do that? You know, Wendell Berry pushes us to be radical. Uh, E.B. White tells us that writers should provide inspiration and guidance and challenge. And the, the wonderfully radical writer Derek Jensen, who writes a lot for Orion Magazine, talks about using words as weapons in service of our communities, and that uh, writing should be a combat discipline. So it's absolutely a challenge to take that kind of advice and somehow combine it with the sense that if we just sit at the base of the Ponderosa Pine or Edward Abbey's Juniper Tree and uh, in Arches, we can learn everything we need to know. There are different kinds of experiences. It's a little bit of that, that old saw about... Um, acting locally and thinking globally. You know, we have to do both, and as writers, we bounce back and forth between those things. And also, the, I've heard that there is a movie being made of the Monkey Wrench Gang. Oh, okay. Ironically, being filmed in New Mexico rather uh, than Utah. <laughs> yeah, but we'll, we'll have to look into that. Uh, so we, we just have, uh, you know, if we're winding down uh, kind of toward the end of the program, I want to get into some some passages. We asked uh, each of our guests to uh, to choose a, a favorite passage or, or two. Probably only have time for, for one each. Maybe we'll start with uh, Tim Wagner. What, uh, what what do you have for us? 
Well, this is something that I actually wrote and published about 17 years ago. And, and, it, and it reels back to the very basic concept of just a sense of place. And I think that sense of place comes from no matter where we, where we grew up, where we lived, and no matter what that landscape looked like. And I grew up in, in the cornfields of, of, of northern Iowa. So this, this, I'll just read a short passage from Nesset. It was called On the Edge of My Father's Cornfield. Since my first glimpse of the Rocky Mountains in my fourth-grade geography book, it has been my lifelong dream to live where I am surrounded by snow-capped mountains, trout-filled rivers, and seasonal contrasts that awaken the senses with each new day. So imagine someone who lives in that place I have described, but with an improper learning, or excuse me, yearning for the plains where flea-flowing rivers have been converted to drainage ditches, and concrete grain-filled towers are the closest resemblance to 12,000-foot peaks. It happened to me one evening as I, as I meandered out behind my garage to empty the day's worth of kitchen compost. It was early evening, about 7.30 p.m. In my hurried hurry, hurry daily schedule, I had overlooked that we were in the midst of a full harvest moon. Until, that is, I stepped out the back door. As I approached the garden from the shadow of the garage, Hidden senses and memories overtook me for one transitory moment. Suddenly, without notice, I was standing on the edge of my father's cornfield. The moon lit the night sky, and the smell, fresh, crisp autumn air, punctuated with the warm odor of decaying vegetation lying at my feet. I shrugged it off at first and turned toward the house and other tasks. Then I paused. It was a pleasant and stark memory, and one I felt the urge to grasp. I turned back to the garden where six rows of old sweet corn stood in effigy long after their productive use and usefulness had expired, rigid and parched from the early morning frost and Indian summer afternoons. The stillness, the moon, the aroma, I needed to experience them again. I reached out for one of the stalks and gently shook it, forcing it to rub against the adjacent plants. There, that sound, indigenous only to corn rustling in the wind. Again, I was back in Iowa, back in my father's cornfield, as evening transcended upon the land and the afternoon heat dissipated into clear night skies, listening to the far-off sounds of a neighbor's tractor straining to till heavy black soil. And I'll stop it there. Hmm. Tell us again the title of that, the piece. The title of that was called On the Edge of My Father's Cornfield, hmm. and it's just about the sense of place of where you grow up. Yeah. And that's where I grew up. That's uh, Tim Wagner. Let's turn next to Teresa Jordan. What uh, what do you have for us? Well, I think um, I'll read a, a little bit from um, where I uh, of um, uh, um, from the year of living virtuously, where I do talk about um, this difference uh, between greed and and hunger. When we are victims of greed, it can feel as if the flesh is being ripped off our bones. The financiers and institutions that figured most prominently in the worldwide economic meltdown are often likened to carrion birds. And in fact, the mutual funds that profit from toxic debt, the rubble of that implosion, are called vulture funds. Real vultures are not greedy. They are just hungry. They feed on the dead, on bodies that no longer serve their owners. Efficient recyclers, they make our world cleaner and healthier. Vultures will gorge themselves. They never know when they will happen upon their next meal. But they will also disgorge. If they feel threatened, they regurgitate to lighten their load and survive. 
We humans have a hard time with this. No matter the threat from world economic collapse, climate change, diminishing resources, or the suffering of other people, many of us never seem to have enough. If it is important to make the distinction between greed and hunger as we look at carrion birds, the same is true when we look at our own behavior. Greed carries with it a degree of intention. Hunger is more thoughtless, by which I don't mean careless, though it often is, but rather without thought, an instinct rather than a conscious decision. A hungry vulture eats what it can find, and so do we. In the end, I find myself less interested in greed than in our mindless, insatiable hunger. Zen teacher Thich Nhat Hanh has introduced Buddhist practice to the West in a way that's useful to followers of any faith. In the Buddhist tradition, Mara attempted to thwart the Buddhist search for enlightenment by tempting him with beautiful women and other earthly delights. Nathan describes Mara as roughly equivalent to Satan and suggests that these days Buddha manifests in mindfulness and Mara in forgetfulness. The Buddha lives in each one of us, or can. Mara lives in each one of us as well. Whenever we give in to temptation or simply fail to act from our deepest beliefs, we forget what matters to us most. We forget that we can choose where to place our attention. We even forget that we have chosen. If we don't remember we have eaten, we are hungry all the time. Hmm. That's Teresa Jordan reading from The Year of Living Virtuously. Thank you. Uh, Stephen Trimble, what, what do you have for us? Well, it's great that Edward Adley's come up a couple times in our conversation because I want to read a little bit about uh, why Abby means something to me. I've been exploring this uh, in an essay that is yet unpublished. But last year was the 25th anniversary of Abby's death, and this year is the 40th anniversary of the publication of The Monkey Wrench Gang. And uh, this kind of all goes back to a quote from uh, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who marched with Martin Luther King, and he said that the opposite of good is not evil. The opposite of good is indifference. And Abby was never indifferent. So here's the piece, a little bit from the piece. Two years after I first read Desert Solitaire in 1971, I became an Arches National Park ranger myself. I felt like a novitiate, an apprentice, a new recruit fully accepted into my tribe. Desert Solitaire sat on my desk and crackled with a vermilion fire the color of the Wingate sandstone butte on the cover an eternal flame that generated sufficient energy to propel me down the track of my professional life. In Abby's season in the wilderness, I'd found my holy book, filled with words that articulated the spirit of my sacred landscape, the canyons of the Colorado Plateau. I've revisited that power for more than four decades, returning to Abby's essays and novels for sustenance, for fuel, for reassurance. I always circled one orbit out from Ed Abbey, when I was a ranger in Moab, I was friends with his friends. When I began publishing, I chose as my mentors and colleagues, writers who knew Abby better than I did. I heard stories of campfires and river trips with Abby, but I wasn't on those trips. As a conservationist, I worked with the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance and the Nature Conservancy, but not with the more radical Earth First, where Abby served as resident outrageous thinker. I loved the Monkey Ranch Gang, and Abby's glee in creating a communal dream to take down the damn dam. But I wasn't Abby's drinking buddy. I didn't always find his rants enchanting. He made me an activist, but not an anarchist. Mostly, he made me a writer, 
the man's voice mattered most to me. As a reader, I encountered no one better at speaking from the heart of the Red Rock wilderness. Abby guided me into living with the Red Rock landscape. He pushed me beyond complacency with his ferocity. He modeled how to be a ranger, an interpreter, a writer, a wilderness tramp, a galvanizing teacher. I couldn't be Abby, but I could keep him with me. His words like bullets in my bandolier as a conservationist writer. His love for the Southwest as an antidote to despair. His anger and morality, a dependable whack on the backside to spur action. When I write about the West, I look for opportunities to be subversive, to sneak in lines from Abby. Abby makes it easy, slyly injecting humor into physiography, tempering loss with irony. I wasn't Ed Abby's intimate friend. I was an acquaintance, a colleague out there across the desert over a mountain range or two. But I was intimate friends with his books. I've never lived anywhere without a copy of Desert Solitaire as my companion. Hmm. That's uh, Stephen Tribble, and as yet unpublished uh, piece right here on Utah Public Radio. And we're out of time. We'll have to leave it there. Uh, happy Earth Day to everyone. And our thanks to uh, Stephen Trimble. Thanks so much for being on with us. Happy Earth Day to everyone. Thanks for having us. Uh, Teresa Jordan, thank you. I echo Steve's um, wishes for Happy Earth Day to everyone, and thank you to you for bringing us together. And uh, Tim Wagner, thanks so much. Thank you so much, Tom. Really appreciate it. Everybody get outside today and enjoy it. All right. Earth Day 2015 on Access Utah. Thanks for listening today. The rich get richer, and that's the saying, right? True in life most times. Not so much true in the National Football League where all the teams get rich. Most of the revenue streams that an NFL team gets are shared equally among all teams in the league. I'm Kai Rizdal to each team according to its need. That's next time on Marketplace from 8 p.m. Wednesday night at 7 on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.